Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Adam. I serve as one of the elders here on staff at Missio. It's great to be back with you all this morning and uh, just invite you to uh, this time as we look to the Word of God together to open up your Bible if you have one. Uh, if not, we'll throw up the words onto the screens for you. But we're going to continue. We've been going through the book of Colossians. We're into chapter 3 now, a letter that Paul uh, wrote to the Colossian believers. And so I'm going to read for us uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, and then we'll look at that together. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, two, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. God, we look to you together this morning as we open up your word, grateful that you are a God who speaks. God, we pray that as we look at your word, that you would draw our attention to you, to the person of your son, Jesus Christ, and that ultimately you would grow our affections for you this morning. God, that we would be a people who would honor you here as your church, as your bride, as the family of God, that we would be a, a people who are distinct in the way that we love and serve one another. God, we thank you for the, the miracle that you have done in our hearts, raising us from death to life, renewing us in the image of you, our creator. So God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this time to be together and to gather around who you are to celebrate what you have done. And use this time in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I think of two things that we, in general, devote a lot of our time, our thought, our energy to as people. Two things, the discovery of of who we are, our identity, and pursuing our ideal future and purpose. We give a lot of our time and thought and energy to those two things, the discovery of our identity and the pursuit of our ideal future. And when we feel as though at times in life that we don't have clarity, that we don't have answers to those things, we feel a bit of restlessness. We feel as though we're, we're kind of floundering a little bit through life at times. But once we gain some clarity, once we have a sense of, of an answer of, of who I am and, and where I'm going, we pursue that. We say no to, to anything that won't help us reach that goal. Anything that might be inconsistent with it. For those who are students, those in medical school, right? You're a student, but man, you, your sights are set on being a doctor. 
For those in education, you're a teacher, but maybe your, your sights are set on administration. Maybe you're somebody who's single, but your, your sights are set on the future of marriage and possibly children. And here's the thing, when it comes to our God, our creator, these two things that we long for and we seek after, God graciously gives to his people in abundance. He gives to us in the fullest and purest sense a new identity and a glorious future. How good and gracious is he to create us with those longings, to create us with those desires of identity and purpose, and to fulfill them in himself, to graciously give those things to us and fulfill those desires, right? How gracious of a God, how good of a God is he to do that for us, for those who are in Christ, who have repented of their sins, placed their faith in Jesus, have been made new, he grants that to us. Levi talked about this last week in Colossians 3, in those first four verses, that our identity is in Christ, our future is in Christ, and that should inform the way that we live here and now. The question we ask is, why wouldn't that reality change the way we live, right? As I said, if you have something in mind for your future, you ignore anything else that is unhelpful or irrelevant to where your mind and your heart are set. You seek out anything that could possibly be in line with that identity, with that purpose for your life. And so for the Christian, for those in Christ, as Levi talked about last week, we've been given those things. We've been given identity. We've been given a future. And now that is the very foundation for our lives. And so this next section, verses five through 11, they build on that foundation. They build on that truth by explaining what our lives should look like. They answer the question, what does a life look like that's built upon that foundation, that matures and grows upon that foundation of an identity in Christ, of those who've been brought from death to life right, and who will appear with him in glory? What does a life look like that's built upon that glorious truth? And so in verses 5 through 11, we have this overarching command, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, right? Therefore, based on the truth of verses 1 through 4, right, this command to put to death what is earthly in you hinges on what he's just said on the identity and purpose that we have because Christ is your life, because Christ is your future, now what? Put to death what is earthly in you. He's saying resist, reject anything in you that is opposed to your present reality and your promised future in Christ. Set aside anything that is inconsistent with who you are in him, with who he's made you to be. Anything that doesn't line up with that future with him forever in glory. He says we're to put away these things that are earthly and we'll, we'll come back in a second to what it means to put them to death or later he says to put them away but he describes what these earthly things are that he has in mind. What is it that he's asking us to put to death? He gives us two lists. The first one shows up in, in verse five. We're to put to death these earthly things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
And then a second list, down in verse eight, he says, put them all away, and he lists anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. In verse nine, do not lie to one another. And so we see, if, if we break down those two lists, the first, each list has a theme. There's a common thread. In that first list, it's the desires of this world, specifically the sexual desires of this world. Those are the earthly things that we are to put to death, he says. Sexual immorality, anything outside of marriage. Any thought, any action that is outside of God's design for marriage. Impurity, passion, right? specifically lust. Evil desire, which gives birth to lust. Covetousness, a hunger for something or someone that's not yours. And he says that the root of all of this is idolatry, that you have these deep affections for something or someone other than God. Then the second list has a theme of how you treat other people. The first one really is how we relate to the desires of this world, specifically sexual desires. The second list is how we treat other people, anger, wrath or rage towards others, malice, the intent to harm someone, slander, the harming of somebody with our words, obscene talk, lying, right? All the damage that we can do or that's been done to us with words. These are the things that are earthly in you. These members of our body that are on earth. These are the things that are inconsistent with who we are as a child of God, as a follower of Christ, as someone who's been made in his image. These are the things that are untrue about who God is. And so these are the things he's saying that are earthly in you that must be put to death. What does that mean? Put to death these things. Put away these things. Right? That can, if we're honest, that can seem like an impossible command. Right? That can seem like you're trying to kill a zombie, like this thing just won't go away. Is that what he's asking of us? Is he asking us to do something that is completely impossible? Because we can read that and think, man, I, I don't know that I have it in me. Like, I don't know that I have enough effort, enough discipline, but I don't think this is a command to try harder. I don't think this is a command to simply discipline yourself right, to overcome these things. What I think what he calls us to in putting these things to death is he's going past just the outward behavior that is an issue, right? Which all of us can recognize, man, these things are issues, right? All of us can see our struggles with these things, with both of these lists, If we're gonna be honest, and it's okay to be honest, God knows anyways. So if we're gonna be honest with these things, he's going past, though, just the outward behaviors, which we've gotta be willing to admit, it's saying it's, you've got to cut off the source, cut off the very lifeline of these things. And so he, he doesn't really give to us practical steps right? in this passage, seven steps for being pure or five steps for healing your relationships. He doesn't do that. But he gives us, I think, two important tools that help us understand what it means to put to death the things in us that are earthly, Number one, he names them. 
He brings them into the light. He calls them out and exposes them for what they are, that they are inconsistent with your identity in Christ. That these are the things that are not a part of your future glory of those who have been risen with Christ and will be raised with him when he appears. And if we refuse to call these things what they are, then they continue to live and continue to master us and continue to fester and bring death into our lives. So he names them. So we must name them. To stop playing around, to stop lying to ourselves that it's not an issue or it's not really that bad or it won't happen again. Name it, call it what it is. Things of the earth. And he names those lists. But he tells us how to treat them. Put them to death. Put them away. Don't feed them. Treat them for what they are. They're foreign. They're unwelcome entities. They're earthly. They're inconsistent with the new self which is being renewed. They're not welcome. They're not part of your new nature. He tells us why in verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Right? For those who ignore this and allow them even just a little bit of life, the wrath of God is opposed to these things. He says his wrath is coming. His future judgment is coming. His wrath, is, which is the result of his holiness, It's the result of his justice. It's the result of him being a good God. He's opposed to all of these things that are evil. He has to be. And so, yes, these things rob you. They rob us of our life today. They're inconsistent with who we are in Christ. But ultimately, if someone chooses these things over God, then they rob us of life for eternity. Because God's wrath is coming as a result of these things. So he reminds them the, the seriousness with which we are to approach them. And he says, secondly, in these things you too once walked when you were living in them. Right? But, now, these, but now, he contrasts that old life with their new life. They're part of your old identity. They're inconsistent with your new self, which is being renewed. So put them away. He says, you used to walk in them, put them away, seeing that you have, verse 9, put off the old self with its practices, and verse 10, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He doesn't simply demand of them better behavior, which is oftentimes what we demand of ourselves when we read lists like this. We demand of ourselves to simply do better. That's not his call here. With these lists, he's describing behavior that's a distortion of their new humanity, of these great gifts that God has given to them of identity and purpose. These things distort that so that they are not fully who God created them to be, and they're inconsistent with the work that he's doing in their lives. And so he's telling them, since your life is in Christ, it's a contradiction to allow anything earthly in you to continue to live. 
So this isn't about, this put to death, put off, it's not about making a resolution to just behave better. It's the idea of living completely in this new reality, living completely in light of our future glory with Christ. That you have a new identity. You're part of a new family. You have a new home. So don't keep a toothbrush and a change of clothes in your old residence. You've got a new home and a glorious future with Christ. Set aside those things. Put them to death. They're foreign, unwelcome. So he says in verse 11, here, where? Here, meaning in this new identity, in, as the people of God, as a people that have been shaped and formed by him, raised to life by him, right? Going back to verses one through four, here, in these foundational truths, in this understanding now of who you are and as you live into this as the people of God who have been shaped by him and are being renewed by him here in this family, he's saying this is what now your new family looks like. This is the community of renewed people that you're part of. Here are the new family rules. And he gives this list, another list, but this time it's of divisions that existed, deep divisions that existed at that time that have no part for those who are in Christ. Here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. These were deep divisions of that day. But he's saying have no part. They're foreign to those who are in Christ. Greek and Jew, Greeks considered themselves as a special people, right? as they're conquering the world, culturally advanced, far better than any other civilization. Right? Jews considered themselves to be God's special chosen people. Right? His hand, his blessing upon them and nobody else. Not only that, but they're proud of their physical separation, this physical mark that God put on them of circumcision. Look down on those who are still uncircumcised. Barbarian, right? Anybody from any other society outside of here, any other uncivilized group of people, right? Barbarians. And Scythians, this group of barbarians that are way out there, about as far removed as you could get from the center of Greek civilization, Right, absolutely uncivilized, disgusting people. And of course, we understand slave and free about as far away as you could get in terms of society and the economy of that day. Those who had everything, those who had nothing. In fact, they owed everything to those who had it. So he's saying wherever you might find prejudice, wherever you might find arrogance, Wherever you might find those things, presence of anger and wrath and slander. Basically, he's saying race, religion, social class, economic class. 
saying, one doesn't behave like that here because here those distinctions he's saying are irrelevant in Christ. They're irrelevant because they deny the creation of humankind in the image of God because together we're being renewed in that image. That's what is most fundamentally true about us. So those other things are irrelevant. He's not saying they cease to exist. He's not saying when you come to Christ, you stop being Greek or you stop being Jewish. Or you stop being barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. Those things don't necessarily go away just because you come to Jesus. He's not saying their differences stop existing. But he's saying that they're irrelevant when it comes to the love that we have for one another to the honor that we give to one another, to the respect that we give to each other, to the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat our bodies, these distinctions are irrelevant. And I mean, these were enormous, enormous barriers at that time. Again, he touches all of them, race, religion, social, economic class. Huge divides for those people in this day. And in our day, especially in the last few months, we have become extremely aware of the barriers that exist in our country along racial lines, along political lines. How many of us are just tired and burdened and weary over the barriers that exist in our day? and the hostility towards one another. I mean, there is clear division created by prejudice. We're doubly, when you think about it, we're doubly divided in this nation over race. Because prejudice still exists, because racism still exists, but then we're divided over the fact of whether or not we think it exists, and we're divided over how we should or should not address it. It's an enormous barrier. And meanwhile, we have our black brothers and sisters who are asking us to listen and to learn and to lean into the reality of their present struggles. On top of the present reality, we face decisions made in the past that were based on prejudice and discrimination that still affect and plague our neighborhoods in this city today. I mean, we've had, over the last few weeks, some of the most violent days that our city has ever faced. I mean, this night, three more shootings. The next night, four more shootings. Violence between young men who are saying to each other, because you're not a part of my gang or because you don't live on my side of town, you're not worthy of living anymore. That's the divide that exists in our culture, in our community today. And then on top of the division that's there, you have some who look in on that and say, well, this is their mess. Let them figure it out. Only creating more hostility and division, or if they only worked harder, then they could be like us. They wouldn't be in this position. 
God, help us. Here, as the family of God, here, as the church, no. Here, there's mutual respect. There's mutual love. There's mutual concern for one another, for each and every life. He says, because of who you are, church, and because of the future that you have in Christ, which that's everything for us, right? That's what he says in verse one through four. This is everything. This is our life. This is our identity. This is our future because of who you are in Jesus, because of the glorious future that you have with Jesus. It's inconsistent and untrue to keep giving your body and your mind to sexual desires outside of God's design in marriage. That doesn't line up with who you are, with how he's renewing you in his image. Because of who you are and your future in Christ, it's inconsistent to mistreat others, put that to death. It's inconsistent to show prejudice and arrogance towards one another, it has no place. But rather, we treat every person with love and respect and dignity. That is the power of what Christ has done, the miracle of what he's doing in the lives of his people, right? That's how powerful and glorious it is that now here, these things that we see that cause great division and great separation, not in Christ. He says simply and powerfully, but Christ is all and in all. That little statement gives serious clarity to the Christian, to the believer, as we think about how we relate to other people, as we think about how we treat people who are different than us. That little phrase, Christ is all and in all, should give us crystal clear clarity on how we are to view and to treat others. And he's starting with the church. That favoritism for those who have more has no place. That prejudice towards those who are different has no place because Christ is all and is in all. I mean, he established this so clearly back in chapter one, verses 15 through 20, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him. Everything equal in its design and purpose. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Everyone, every person. Complete equality, complete oneness. He's saying when you consider that which is most fundamental to our nature, Skin color, 
Religion, social class, economic class, yes, they're part of our lives and they're an important part of our stories, but they are not the core of our identity. They're not the most important thing about who we are, especially as the church. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 28, he writes a similar thing. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all, every single one, equally, sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Saying these barriers are no more. Instead, there's mutual welcome, mutual respect within the church. Again, I mean, the, the barriers that he names, though they don't seem as significant to us at that time, tremendous hostility. What could possibly cross those types of barriers? And we sit here and ask, what could possibly cross the barriers of black? to white, rich to poor. And it goes so much deeper than praising good behavior and correcting bad behavior. If Christ is your life and he is your future church, he's saying then call it what it is. Call your sexual immorality what it is. Call your arrogance and your prejudice towards others what it is. It's foreign, it's inconsistent, it's unwelcome, it's earthly. And let it be so here in the church. Because the reality is the, the world doesn't comprehend. They don't have verses one through four. That's everything to us. Empty religion doesn't have verses one through four. Identity, future. Christians who are Christian by name only don't have verses one through four. Identity, purpose. No, this is the work of Christ in and through the church. That's what we stand on. That's our foundation that God has graciously given to us. And so he's calling the church to live in light of that. In light of verse 4, this future glory that we have in Christ, right? In light of what's coming, to be with him for all eternity, to worship him with every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's our glorious future. And so here today, here now, here in this city, here among those of us who are knitted together by Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ, here, let this be true of us. Neither Greek nor Jew. Circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Black, white, rich, poor. Christ is all and is in all. That has to be our foundation. That is the only foundation. 
And it's been given to the church. And so may that cause us to be the people who put to death then what is earthly, who put away what is earthly. That within these walls, so to speak, within our relationships, within the way we treat one another, that it would be a picture of that future glory, that it would be a picture of that new identity that we have in Christ. That he might be glorified in us. And that we would be here today, what he has created us to be, what he has recreated us to be in Christ, what he is calling us to be in the midst of this world, and what our world today so desperately needs to see. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the work that you have done, for the miracle that you have done in bringing us from death to life. And God, we look forward with great anticipation to the return of our Savior Jesus and to our future glory with him. Let us be a people who are so consumed with that that anything of this earth in us just appears absolutely foreign to us. Would you by your spirit and by your grace cause us to put to death these things so that here you would be glorified and honored, here that we would be a picture of what is to come. Lord, strengthen our relationships where there's division and divide in the church, where there's conflict, unresolved conflict and hostility in our relationships with brothers and sisters. God, may we seek that out so that you might bring peace and healing, that you'd be glorified in us. Do that work, we pray. Thank you for renewing us in knowledge after the image of you, our creator. In his name we pray, amen.